Welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the context in which we are living today. Through Christian scripture and our various traditions, what guidance can we find and imagination can we practice as white folks about our role in resistance and showing up in practices of repentance and liberation? My name is Reverend M. Jade Barclay, or just M. My pronouns are they, them, and I am the director of an organization called Enfleshed, where we create and facilitate spiritual nourishment for collective liberation. I am Southern grown, but live currently uh, in the Midwest, in the place currently known as Iowa City, Iowa, but first home to the Iowa, Oto, Omaha, Pawnee, Sioux, Sauk, and Meskwaki peoples. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians. White Christians talking to other white Christians about race and white supremacy. We believe white Christians, and those of us who might identify in the realms of Christian-ish or Christian-adjacent, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, especially through the Christian tradition. Any of us, white folks, who have grown up with a relationship to Christianity, whether conservative, liberal, evangelical, or progressive, have inherited Christian-specific facets of white supremacy, that we have the power and responsibility to unlearn and imagine anew, including our conception of the divine. We do this work remembering we are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. As we move into our reflection today, I'm going to invite us into some grounding through a little prayer from our library at inflesh.com. Search my heart, O love, and lead me in the ways of solidarity. Help me to lay down my defenses and grow beyond the edges of my knowing, that I may move more deeply into practices of care, of right relationship, of liberation and transformation. Grounded in the truth of my inherent worth, planted in the knowledge of my power, mindful of the stories and legacies and systems that shape me, I pray my becoming unfolds in the direction of freedom Mine, others, ours, this planet's. May this day be my teacher and my learning sincere. May it be so. text I'm thinking about today is 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 20. I'm going to read it for you with a slight adaptation to disrupt the compulsory, compulsory 
whew, compulsory masculinization of God. It's a mouthful. <laughs> Here's the reading. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified that God raised Christ, whom was not raised if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who... Those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. Okay, <laughs> it's, a, it's a doozy of a text, isn't it? Um, if you had a hard time following along with the reading, I just want to assure you that, like, it's not you, it's the text. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot that I find interesting in the details, uh, and I could really get pulled in into that, but uh, I'm not going to today. Uh, I'm thinking about big picture uh, engagement with the context of this text. Um, and partly I want to do that because uh, when I first read this text, uh, what immediately came to mind for me, uh, and I'll share why in a little bit, uh, but what came to mind is the work of Grace Lee Boggs, activist and philosopher. Um, Grace Lee Boggs' work has been a part of like radically shifting my own orientation toward liberation work and um, I'm just excited anytime I get a chance to talk about <laughs> her work. Um, if you haven't read her book, uh, The New American Revolution, uh, sorry, I always say it that way, but it's The Next American Revolution, which is even better. Uh, highly recommended. Um, yeah, so one of the things, especially later in her life, uh, that she talked about a lot was basically how context and creativity need to shape and reshape our movements, which is why the next in the title matters so much, right? It's the, the shaping and reshaping. Um, they should uh, shape and reshape the questions we're asking, how we're living out what social justice is, uh, that these things are not meant to be static or like just repeated over and over again across the decades or the centuries um, without reflection on what is like most useful and most effective for each given era. Um, like strategies and perspective need to shift with the moments and context we're in. Uh, we don't just keep doing the same thing over and over again because it worked for other times. Um, resistance, I hear her suggesting, uh, needs to be something more queer. The definitions and boundaries changing and being questioned and being reformed and never quite becoming something that is like fixed or permanent. Um, Grace Lee Boggs called creativity the key to unlocking human liberation. And so one of the questions that she was asking a lot 
uh, in her engagement with others, asking people to think about um, is the question, what time is it on the clock of the world? And I love that question. I love that question, and I love the ways that it invites us to consider how we're living today and whether it suits this particular time. You know, it's like there are some things you do at 2, and there are some things you do at 10, and there are some things you do at 5, uh, and it's kind of like that in a big picture collective way, right? Like, what time is it, and, and what do we do in this particular time? Um, it makes me think of Advent. Uh, not long ago, uh, Jesus was just talking about paying attention to what's happening, right? To, uh, Jesus was talking about keeping awake, keeping attuned, uh, noticing signs around us that might indicate sort of what part of the story of God we're in, right? Um, when you recognize the signs of the end of this era, Rise up and lift your heads, he says. Your redemption is near. Another way I kind of think about it is like Ecclesiastes. We're familiar, right, with the, uh, the bit about there being a season for everything. Um, it's about paying attention to what's happening now. Is this a season of war or a season of peace? Is this a time to pluck up? Or is this a time to tear down? The answers offer us something about how to live and move and build community and meet needs and organize. So Grace's question is on my mind when I read this text. And part of why that comes to mind is due to the work of Dr. Pamela Eisenbaum. She is a Jewish New Testament scholar at ILIF in Colorado. And she wrote a book called Paul is Not a Christian. Paul was not a Christian. Goodness, I am just doing so great with the titles of these books. <laughs> Apologies. Uh, Paul was not a Christian. It's so good. Um, it, it was, uh, for me, a real paradigm shift uh, for my engagement uh, with scripture. And um, I think it would be for a lot of folks um, raised in the Christian traditions. Uh, basically, in her case for understanding Paul as Jewish throughout his life and ministry, uh, it really changes how one might understand the conversations and controversies unfolding throughout, uh, throughout the scriptures. One of the things that she says about Paul is that you know, he didn't have this, like, conversion experience from Judaism to Christianity because Christianity didn't yet exist as distinct from ancient Judaism, which most of us kind of know in a way, right? But somehow we're still taught to kind of ignore it in our reading of the scriptures. Um, and so she says, yeah, you know, he had, he had an a significant spiritual encounter with the risen Christ, no doubt, uh, not calling that into question, right? But what that means is very important, uh, very different, sorry, uh, if it is interpreted based on sort of common modern Christian supremacist understandings uh, versus from within Paul's perspective as a Jewish person. 
And so one way to kind of think about what changes for Paul after experiencing a resurrected Christ is, I think, uh, to kind of pose the idea that he understands the time on the clock of the world to be different than uh, what he understood the time on the clock of the world to be before he encountered the the risen Christ. It's like he realizes that in the story of God, now he believes this is a different chapter than he used to believe it was. Um, maybe like it's closer to the end of the book and the story of God than he thought before. Uh, and this sort of reorientation of time and history changes a lot. So as we remember that this God of the scriptures is the God uh, not a contextless God, but a God of the ancient Israelites um, who has promised them specifically ultimate redemption. Uh, that is material, political liberation. It's like Paul is saying, listen, if Christ has been resurrected, that means this is now the resurrection era. That's actually where we are in the story now. And that's a big deal. Resurrection wasn't understood within ancient Judaism as this like individualistic reality as it's often interpreted um, in Christian context now. Uh, it was never going to be like just the Christ figure who was resurrected. Um, like most things in the tradition, it was understood as a like a group outing, if you will. <laughs> Dr. Eisenbaum points us to Revelation 1.5, where Christ is named the firstborn of the dead. The firstborn of the dead. The first implies, you know, there are more, <laughs> more to come. Um, and you can kind of hear in the text how Paul is correlating both the resurrection of Christ with the resurrection of people, plural. Um, and of course, as the text unfolds, uh, people have so many questions about what that resurrection will actually entail and like fair. <laughs> but the point, uh, at least the point that I want to highlight for us today, is that like Paul is saying, it's happening, right? Like, this is where we are in the story of God. We're in the part where the resurrection occurs, which means that the part where liberation occurs, not in part, but in full, it's close. There's not much time to bring the Gentiles into the fold of the God of the ancient Israelites. So let's get on it, folks. If the God of ancient Israel, who has made promises to the people of ancient Israel, promises, again, of a political material redemption of a freedom out from under empire, is bringing an end to domination then that necessarily leaves the question of what happens to Gentiles, right? Like, what does freedom entail when it comes to outsiders of one's community? And it's a good, hard question. When liberation for XYZ communities draws near, what does that mean for those outside of those communities? I think this is one of the things that scripture can be a really good and interesting conversation partner with, because you've got this extremely particular community um, 
relatively particular community. I'm already hearing Dr. Eisenbaum's uh, work in my head uh, that complicated the the boundaries of of Israel. Um, that those those boundaries were um, not as hard and fast as they're some try sometimes uh, discussed, but nonetheless. Uh, relatively particular community, uh, they are the ones at the center of the story, right? Uh, again, we know that, and we're also like kind of constantly encouraged to forget that. <laughs> uh, but this isn't a god of apolitical neutrality or apolitical universality. But, and, this particular god, a god of a particular community, is also concerned with and related to all life, all people, all creatures and creations. And so when it comes down to it, the liberation of the ancient Israelites will also inherently mean the liberation of all life. Everyone who wants to participate in the life of that God is being invited in. Uh, that's what happens at this uh in this part of the story of God. That's what happens uh, when the resurrection era has come. And that's what Paul uh, is passionately arguing uh, that the clock of the world has now struck. struck. Um, and he has been converted to that belief because of his um, encounter with the risen Christ, right? I love how this opens up reflection for us today. How do we conceptualize an understanding of God's commitment to particular histories and communities, like a God of black liberation, a God of earth liberation, a God of disability justice, a God of trans flourishing, like specifically delivering people and life forms from concrete systems of oppression and specific histories, while also ultimately that God being the God of all those communities overlapping and intersecting and of everyone who wishes to be in relationship with that God. One of the things I love is how the scriptures navigate the complexities there, like holding our particularities, our differences, the histories and contexts, they shape how we relate to God, like the differences between Jewish and Gentile Christ followers. There's ultimately a shared God, but their relationship is different. I think that there is a lot there for us today. It makes me wonder how many white dominant churches are thinking about the God that brings us into the fold as the God of particular communities liberation. How many have in mind on Sunday the God of black liberation, like material and political liberation? How many have in mind the God who promises deliverance for the earth? out from under human consumption and colonizing forces? How many have in mind a God who protects trans children like a mama bear? And what comes up when we have these images in mind? 
does it change anything about how, especially as white people, we understand what we're doing in this religion, what is asked of us, and what directions we're being transformed, and what it means uh, to be fully human? The God of disability justice and queer flourishing, the God of indigenous sovereignty, you know, that's not the God I was taught to have in mind in my younger life, right? That's not the one many of us imagined being baptized into right relationship with, right? Because a lot would be different if that had been the case, especially collectively. <laughs> But I think many of us, perhaps who were baptized into not that, have along the way come to understand that the God we actually wish to be in relationship with is indeed all of those specifically political things, a God of material deliverance for all life. Um, and so hopefully that's changing what we understand to be doing together, integrating that God into our lives and relationships and beings and bodies and communities. Uh, in her other book on Romans, Dr. Eisenbaum wrote, writes, Luther and millions of Christian since may have seen Romans as the answer to the question, how can I be saved? But that is not Paul's question. Paul's question is, now that the end of time is at hand, how will God reconcile all people? Jews and Gentiles, collectively. It makes me think about what it means to be working for liberation collectively in this moment, given what time it is on the clock of the world. How both the particularities and the histories of our communities, how we and all our various forms of whiteness don't leave that behind, but instead let it shape our understandings of our roles in liberation work. But and, how we are invited into this ultimate mutual interest for life to flourish across communities and the planet. It's both and. And meanwhile, the time is short, right? When I think about all the signs and symbols around us pointing to what time it is on the clock of the world, I am moved by Paul's eagerness to take risks, to build communities, to engage complicated and controversial things because that's what love looks like in that era. And in our era, I think, we got to be real about what's coming and let that shape who and how we are now, if we're in this together. Paul is really ready to put things on the line with others. And he is doing this despite, despite all evidence to the contrary, that deliverance is near. And what I mean by that is he's saying, like, we're close now. The God of ancient Israel is going to follow through on these promises of liberation. And, you know, we see all of the apocalyptic imagery and revelation of what that means. We know it's a serious time. It's not to be treated carelessly. The end of any age and the beginning of a new one isn't going to be a smooth and innocent transition. There is going to be suffering of many kinds. The idea of, of infrastructures, whether these are ancient infrastructures or modern modern ones, uh, failing is very, very costly. Um, but there is also in there, in the mix of it all, a promise of freedom, of liberation from evil, of material needs being met, of, of powers and principalities and institutions uh, coming to the end of their reign, right? 
And so Paul is ready to take on the risk of building, building up the new things um, and, and saying that this is going to happen, that these possibilities are, are before us, uh, even while Rome, to many people, might look nice and sturdy, right? Look, people looking at Rome saying, what are you talking about? <laughs> this thing is, is, is going to be, there's, this thing's not going anywhere, right? And so part of the conflict throughout the scriptures is about people having different feelings about what's possible and what's not and how much to rock the boat and how much not to, how much to chalk up to what's necessary for survival and, you know, quote unquote, what's practical and realistic versus like what's too pie in the sky. We hear the challenges of answering these questions throughout scriptures. And we even see Paul changing his mind every now and then, which I understand. I change my mind all the time. <laughs> like sometimes it just like depends on what I ate that day. Other times it depends on whether I've had access to communities who remind me, um, you know, what I do believe in. Um, some days I feel like so little is possible and we should just do what's necessary to get by. And other days I feel like so much is possible and it's like a hair's breadth away, right? Um, I, and on those days, like, I feel we just, we just gotta, you know, keep leaning on each other to build these possibilities um, but it's tough. It can be tough to stay there. Um, but, but Paul is working really hard to get more and more people on board. And, and even that is not without his complications, right? When I think about like Paul bringing in Gentiles and all the questions that that brings up in regards to like, what does it mean for white people to be brought into movements of liberation um, or cis people or non-disabled people? There are so many complicated layers there and there's going to be a lot of understandable disagreements about how helpful that is or how that leads to liberation or not. Uh, what barriers uh, need to be there um, or, yeah, uh, you know, it, Wherever there is there is relationships of domination and marginalization, it's just going to be complicated, uh, even when there is uh, some degree of a shared uh, desire, shared outcome, right? Uh, desire shared, desire of outcome is what I think I'm trying to say. <laughs> Uh, it's just, it's always complicated to build movements based on values, um, even when they cross identities. It's hard stuff, um, and it's complicated because dominance often finds its way in somehow to make a mess out of potential for lasting collaborations and solidarity. Um, I think for me, it's just been so important to get comfortable with the reality of those complications, to get familiar with them and respectful of them so that I can show up to them with some degree of my shit worked out around that. <laughs> By which all I mean to say is that like, we can hang with those realities, the complicated truths, uh, without taking them personally. Um, yeah. <sighs> okay. How's that for a complicated engagement with a complicated text? <laughs> it's the resurrection era. 
And buying into that means buying into the promises of God unfolding soon. Uh, the ones of deliverance, uh, the God of deliverance and liberation. Um, if it's that era, that means Jews and Gentiles who wish to be in right relationship with the God of the ancient Israelites, they're going to do something new together. Now is the time for doing something new together. The clock of the world strikes time for a radical relational shift. We, uh, we as collectives, we don't have forever um, to write our relationship uh, with uh, the God of black liberation, the God of immigrants and refugees, the God of this aching planet. Um, eras will come to an end and new ones will be birthed, and we don't have forever. And we have been invited in to the work of liberation and deliverance. Um, so how will we live? That is uh, a question I hear for us in the text. The times are urgent, says Bayo Akomolafe. Let us slow down. So this week, I'm inviting us to spend 30 minutes reflecting on what time it is on the clock of the world. Do some journaling about what that question might mean to you. How do you discern what season it is? What are the signs you pay attention to? What is this particular era asking of you? And how does it look, how does it look like or differ from prior eras? Get concrete. How are you spending your time, your resources, your energy, and how does it align with what is collectively needed in the immediate and long term? While you're at it, I've got a second one for you. <laughs> we need your support for the work we have ahead of us in 2022. If you're committed to getting white folks on board for dismantling white supremacy, please make a donation to Surge. We split every donation with a movement partner doing amazing work, like that of Soul Force, who works to end the religious and political oppression of LGBTQI people by decloaking the ideologies of Christian supremacy and healing our community spirits from weaponized religion. You can donate online at https colon forward slash forward slash bit.ly, that's bit.ly, slash S-U-R-J-S-F. That's bit.ly slash S-U-R-J-S-F. Or you can find our pod podcast page at surge.org. We'll share the link on social media too. Thanks for helping support this podcast and organizing white people to show up for racial justice in the new world we're building together. Thanks, as always, for joining us. We'd love to hear from you all, and especially folks of color and non-Christian folks, 
by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages or filling out the survey on our podcast page at surge.org. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you check out our podcasts. You can find out more about Surge at surge.org, where you can sign up for our Surge Faith updates and find transcripts for every episode, which include references, resources, and action links. Next week, we'll have a resistance word from Kelsey Beeb. And finally, so much gratitude for the work of our sound editor for this episode, Claire Hitchens. Thank you, Claire. And remember, to celebrate our fifth birthday, we are having our first ever virtual meetup for our listeners. That's you. Mark your calendars for March 2nd at 8 p.m. Eastern. Register at bit.ly slash T-W-I-R meetup. That's bit.ly slash T-W-I-R meetup. Or watch our social media. The link will also be in the transcript to this episode. You'll get to meet our crew and hear from us about how we do this thing called the word is resistance. Get an overview of what we're paying attention to for the Lent readings, ask us question, questions, and meet folks who are in your area. We would love to meet you, so please join us. As we do our best to discern what time it is on the clock of the world and what that means for how we live, um, I'm going to close with the words of Simone Veil. Attention, taken to its highest degree, is the same thing as prayer. It presupposes faith and love. Absolutely unmixed attention is prayer. I'm M. Barclay, and thank you for joining me today in this life and faith practice of prayer and reflection. Thank you.